Anna here. Did you know I have another podcast? And did you know it's all about failure? Well, at this point, you'd have to answer yes to both of those questions because I just told you. But my other show isn't just about failure. It's about failing your way to success. Yes, success. Because the most successful people are often just the people who've gotten up the most times after their failures. Don't believe me? Go download Fail Your Way to Success wherever you get your podcasts or go to failyourway.com for more info. Now back to the show. Welcome to the after party. It's time to change. You're just getting started. You can teach an old dog new ways and not just on Saturday. Hi, it's Anna David. I, whoa, David, I just had trouble saying my last name. And the reason that um, this is now the third time I'm trying to record this is that I just gave the wrong name for this podcast. (laughs) So that's what you're getting for better or for worse. That's where I'm at today. Um, But hey, you know what? It's all fine. I didn't even realize I was that out of it until I started trying to say my name and the name of this podcast. Welcome if you're new. This is a podcast all about addiction, recovery, uh, living life, realizing that recovery isn't the end of life, but the beginning. Yeah. And I feel like I haven't recorded one of these intros in a long time just because I did a couple really fast and and now, hey, I'm a little rusty. And it's been Thanksgiving has happened since I last recorded. I hope you guys had a good Thanksgiving. I know that it could be, it can be a rough time. Um, I just heard somebody say recently, alcoholism is a threefold disease, Thanksgiving, Christmas, and New Year's. Because that's when it gets harder, you know? And then and then you see a lot of people getting sober around New Year's resolution time. But anyway, mine was, mine was good. I don't know. I don't know what that's about, but it was good. I will say that yesterday was, I, I had a bit of a meltdown. I had like what, what, what could kindly be called a crack up. I don't know how you guys handle it, but I just, it was administrative stuff that I do for after party chat, the accompanying website to this podcast. And I hit a wall. It was, I was dealing with writers being difficult and, and admin people being difficult. And, and I felt like I've become a paper pusher and everyone's yelling at me and I didn't, Worked this hard to get that. Anyway, that was how I felt at the time. There might have been some, not desk slamming at all. I was like shaking the desk for just just a few seconds. And uh, my editor and writer who were in here yesterday, uh, I'll tell you, uh, neither of them came in today working from home because I wouldn't want to be around that energy either. Although the energy got solved and I'm fine. And um, so that's good. Anyway, uh, today's guest, this is a treat. This is somebody I've known for a couple years, um, probably double a couple years if we're going to be precise. Uh, her name is Patty Powers, and she is a sober coach, a recovery coach uh, in New York City, but she travels all around. I first met her when I uh, was working at The Fix, and we did a story on her because she was the star of this A&E miniseries called Relapse, which was a sort of accompanying show to intervention. And uh, she is one interesting lady. Uh, I, I learned so much about her life today that I did not know, but suffice it to say, I mean, as she said, it was sort of... Uh, 
there was a sort of Forrest Gump-like, Zelig-like uh, quality to her life because she was in New York in the 80s uh, around all the people that were part of the scene. She was living at the Chelsea Hotel. She was shooting heroin. She was there, man. And then it became, she was then, you know, living in abandoned buildings. And, and um, well, she, I'm going to let her tell you all about it. But she's now been sober uh, 26 years and uh, writes and talks about her sobriety very openly and helps people all over the world who hire her to be their recovery coach. Um, and she's working on a book. Uh, you'll hear all of this stuff. But she also, I mean, she's big time. She was, the New York Times recently did a story about sobriety, uh, about sober coaching and sober, you know, and recovery coaching and all of that. And she was a big old picture of Patty when you clicked on the story. So, or for you old-fashioned folks, when you opened the newspaper. Um, so that's it. We had an amazing conversation. I think you will be thrilled with this one. This is Patty Powers. I first started taking drugs by chewing blocks of hash. Oh, my God. I think my copy has, like, blood stains on it from shooting up while reading it. Party animal. I hate to say that because that makes me sound Paris Hilton. I was on the, as right. I call it, the Autobahn to nowhere. I'm very lucky because would you have wanted to have a celebrity junkie for a dad? We are recording. Hi. Welcome, Patty. Hey, Anna. So glad you're here. You look super cute. You do too. It is a shame this is not a video podcast, is it not? I know. I put on makeup while driving for this. I know. You risked your life to look good for this. And for, for you. other things. It, and for you. Well, but okay. Women dress for women. I know. I know. They don't even notice those men, do they? Well, sometimes no. they do. No. Don't you remember every girl I know? Every girl. And this is a creepy story. Yeah. Makes men uncomfortable. Every girl I know, when they were between 11 and 14, in the mall, outside a store, waiting for their parents, whatever, some creepy guy between 30 and 50 would come up and say, hey, what's your name? To every girl I know. I don't feel like that happened to me. Really? I mean, maybe it was so normal. It was normal. You just kind of knew some creep factor in your instincts were like creepy dude but it's because we were dressed like so cute right. for each other right. but it translated like you look like a little hooker to older people right <laughs> that's so interesting okay i don't i don't think i dressed that cute i mean i really was not i'm not a visual person at all so my entire if i ever look put together it's sheer vanity it's not yeah. aesthetics <laughs> so it's weird but so i don't think i dressed super cute as a kid but i will tell you i don't know if you ever had this experience but oh my god walking around as a kid as like a 12 or 13 year old and creepy men going Smile. What the fuck is That's what that? I'm talking about. The same thing. Like, you learn how to look at the ground. Yeah. Well, okay, so what's <laughs> up with these crazy, creepy men who say smile to little girls? Or to adolescent girls? Well, I'll tell you something. I had noise. Like, every girl has noise, right? Yeah. From the minute they get boobs. Yeah. Until they're about 45. Don't say There's it. this noise following you. Right. Hey, smile. Good morning. God bless you. You're so beautiful. I want to eat your pussy. How about my dick? Blah, blah, right, blah. Right, Whatever right, they right. can squeeze in. So you don't know what's coming at you. Is it going to be flattery or is it going to be just total Gross. sexual yeah. accosting? Right? Yeah. So you learn to look at the ground. You don't make eye contact with people. And you learn to shut yourself off so you can get from A to B. You just do. That's what happens to girls. Girls have that happen. Period. So and then you're walking down the street one day and you go, it's really quiet. Am I over? 
Am I over? Is it over? So now people go, good morning, and I'm so friendly now. (laughs) I know. It's really, it's so interesting because I also used to have this thing where, um, where like, yeah, if, if if I had eye contact with like a guy that I didn't know, I would be immediately repulsed. And then I'd be like, what's wrong with me? Like that eye contact when you're just like looking at a stranger. But now if he's attractive, I'm like, this is awesome. (laughs) Now I have to learn how to have eye contact because now I just go into that weird shy mode. Yeah. Which is funny after, you know, 20 years in a strip club where it's like, hey, how are you? That's different kind of. It's different. Because you kind of disassociate, right? Okay. But okay. Okay. So we went straight to bed. You know, because the thing is, the things I know about your story are bits and pieces, really. Um, from the amazing stories you've written for After Party and just from our conversations and then from like what I've picked up from the show, but I don't really know the complete version. Yeah. So let's go back to the beginning. The beginning. Yeah. Okay, sure. When Whatever did you first you want. drink? I first, okay, my father was an active alcoholic mm-hmm. until I was 10. He got sober when I was 10. So I drank... Probably at 12, you know, where you cipher out everything from your friend. You make that cocktail that's going to make you puke, but yeah. like it's going to do the job. I did that walking to the skating rink at 12. Kind of the first time I could go somewhere at that age where you could walk with a friend and you were no longer being driven by your parents. Right. So the minute I had that freedom, I was like drinking, right? Yeah. But I was so afraid of my parents smelling alcohol on my breath and it triggering my dad to drink. I didn't want to break his heart. So I... Got drunk a couple. I got drunk once, and then I was getting high. I went straight right. to drugs because so I could hide that? that. Yeah. I got caught buying a nickel of hash. I got caught the first time I bought drugs. Oh my, my parents God. found out. But I was so crafty because it was. We're talking 1972. Right. So there were hippie, drug addicty looking people, and Bowie kind of people, and uh, like not even Bowie. Like that was still super underground, but. Um, so I wanted drugs. I saw Go Ask Alice. I mm-hmm. wanted acid. Mm-hmm. So I found, I looked around the neighborhood and who looked like a hippie. So I stalked out someone who lived in my neighborhood who was older and I some, found someone who knew her. We got in a conversation with her. I pressured her to try to find me some hash. We put our money together. We got $5 worth hash. We tried smoking it off a pin. I didn't even smoke cigarettes then, so I didn't really know how to inhale, but I wanted to get high. Yeah. And my parents found out right away that something was going on with me and this girl, Lori, the hippie girl up the street. They didn't find the drugs, but it was like... So I learned from that point how to be really manipulative and really crafty. And at all costs, my biggest concern was that my parents didn't find out because I didn't want my dad to drink again. That is such an interesting reason to not want them to find out. Right. That's a lot of pressure on a kid. <laughs> well, it really gave me really amazing, quick lying skills, which yeah. came in handy later when oh, I'd be crossing yeah. borders with drugs and right. you know, right. living here illegally for 14 years. Like, how long are you going? Oh, the weekend. How long were you away? Oh, the weekend. You right. know, meanwhile, I live here. Yeah, I was really good under pressure. Yeah, yeah. Which helps with writing. Like, I can come up with the storyline, boom, 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 (laughs) boom, boom. But it also helps with clients because it's like they say this, so the computer screen in my mind opens of what it really could mean and where the disease is talking from what angle. So I can be a few steps above and quicker than their backstory and start to guide them without them knowing what I'm doing. So you're a lying expert, basically. I took my 
defect of manipulation and turned it to good. As, as we're supposed to. But, like, we don't need lie, lie detector tests. We've got Patty Power. You know? <laughs> it's true. Yeah, that's interesting. Which is really hard for boyfriends. Mm, right. You know? Right. Like, Be- anyone who cheats or whatever, you just know from 3,000 miles away, you wake up in the middle of the night, you're like, he is fucking somebody right now. I but- should get on a plane and save this marriage. <laughs> But wait a second. How does that uh, rub up against alcoholism where we can become completely convinced of something because of a fear-based thought? Something that's false. Don't you experience that? No. Really? I, I, I really haven't. I have pretty strong intuitive sense. So if I don't want to go with my intuitive sense and just try to brush it off, of course later I was right. You know. So then I'm just like, why don't I just listen to it more? Like, What is right. wrong with me that I just want to go with the better fantasy storyline I guess I don't I I get my intuition and my fear mixed up a Mm. lot but I have noticed I got in a conversation yesterday with a friend because all my I got clean out here so all my really long term friends are here you know we grew up together in recovery Yeah. so you know it's so great to see them and what I've discovered in the last you know maybe four years our belief systems that were so subtle and insidiously became part of a fabric of me right. that came in at 12, came in at 17, that I've never questioned, right. that limit the possibilities for me in yeah. my recovery and in my choices in life. And I'm just starting to see. Right. So like, how, what's, what's how, an example of one? Okay, I live in New York. I've rent stabilized apartment. In the years of my life, I've lived in New York, had great deals, left, lived in LA, whatever, came back, new rent, double the price. So when I moved back in 92 and I got this one, my thing was, I'm going to live here till the day I die. Yeah. Well, you know what? I fucking have lived there for 21 years and it has put a lot of limitations on my life. Instead of thinking, like the underlying thing that I couldn't see in this, saying was some part of me had to believe that two rooms in Manhattan without sunlight was the best it was ever going to fucking get for me. Right. Which is not what I would have say speaking at a meeting or talking to clients. And I didn't know that that was it. Like I know in New York, it's a different thing than anywhere in the world. And I can't complain about my apartment in New York because everyone thinks I'm ungrateful. Yeah. Blah, blah, blah. But the truth is I deserve, I, I'm working with clients in these amazing apartments right. with views of like skyscrapers and where it feels New York-y and there's a lot of sunlight and they have a dog that they love and all this stuff I can't have in my apartment and that I thought that this was going to be enough for me. Yeah. Like I didn't question that I could have something else. So I changed mm-hmm. my whole belief system. Like it's a nice apartment that I'm living in right now. Yeah. But I have a dog-shaped hole, as you know from my writing, and I want a dog, so yeah. it means I have to move. Yeah. But I didn't see that. That's one example of like belief systems that are so sneaky that have to do with low self-esteem. And you're like, okay, fuck me. 26 years clean. I've always had a sponsor. I've sponsored people. I've been in therapy. I do a lot of work on myself. Right. I know I've grown and changed so much. Does self-esteem shit ever really even out? Like, I'm finding other little secret pockets where mm-hmm. the, it's based in a low self-esteem thing that goes against everything I believe in myself. Mm-hmm. And it's like, oh, this was hidden in this back closet drawer? How did I not know? I thought I worked on all the self-esteem stuff. But like, what if what, that when is, just, is this going to clear out? What if that, those pockets, is just being a human being? 
and has nothing to do with like alcoholism or the way we grew up or anything. Well, a lot of it's human beings, except part of it, I think, is that we actively work on being free. Yeah. And getting rid of limitations, self-limiting belief systems, right? Yeah. So this all are part of these self-limiting belief systems. So, yeah, human beings, but a lot of human beings want to look at that stuff so they can have more expansion and, you know, limitless possibilities in their life. And they do that work and they hit those places. Right. And we sabotage our joy in subtle ways all the time. And we are like, oh, but I've grown and changed so much over here. So, you know, we do the glass, you know, half full. We're always, like, hopeful. Right. But... But for the amount of work that we have so many, and I believe it's the disease, keeps those secret things. See, that's mm-hmm. the difference. I think that 26 years into it, and I'm discovering these little black back closets in the back with a drawer of something I hadn't looked at yet. Right. That's so obvious now. Like, something's happened this year where I suddenly see all these drawers that I couldn't see before. And I know it's the result of all the work I've done. So I think it is a recovery, and it's exciting. But my thing is, like, God, it's so slow. Yeah. It's really slow. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's, of this it isn't really a bad is. thing, Yeah, but it's really slow. Yeah. I mean, do you find that one day, literally, like, something you have that has been tormenting you, or, or just that you've known has been a problem, one day it's simply not? Like, the promises-ish. Yeah. Yeah. Like one day you actually are showing up for a relationship when you had totally convinced yourself you never could. One day, you know, you you do believe. One day you say this is unacceptable and you mean it. Yeah. You're not saying it because it sounds good in a Cosmo article. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but I find, you know, I, I have found that this year. Um, and I could, you know, who knows about self-delusion. But, like, I really am just sort of astounded. Oh, my God, this pays off. You know, there's, well, there's better. I, I always think, oh, this is as far as I'm going to get emotionally, you know? Right. Well, it's weird because I always tell people that, you know, I'm ADD, which yeah. was diagnosed at 54, which is crazy. Yeah. Well, they didn't uh, diagnose this back in But the it day. makes total sense. Yeah. You know, my therapist tried to diagnose it when we first got together, and I just laughed at her. I'm yeah. like, this is like, you might as well just say incest. Like, in the 90s, we yeah. all were incest survivors, right? right. right? <laughs> <laughs> now we're all ADHD. Right. But... It makes sense with everything in my life. Yeah. Right? So I get bored easily. That's one of the things is that if I'm not excited about something, if something doesn't engage me fully, I will lose interest quickly. Yeah. So I have a history of being bored easily. Mm Mm-hmm. Recovery has stayed interesting to me. I am the same way. It has stayed interesting. And I just tell anyone getting clean, like, this really, like, you will not get fucking bored. One, because your self-obsession is the core of our disease. So working on ourself is going to be a thing we're going to continue doing because we just like to think about ourselves. But the payoff is consistent. So even though I'm talking about these little back closets that I hadn't even seen, they hadn't, in all the inventories, all the therapy, all the everything, maturing, getting older, all of that stuff, there were just some obvious things that were so hidden for me that are now being revealed. I'm not saying it's a bad thing. It's just really exciting to me that it is a result of all the work. Like you said, like all these changes happen, promises happen, and you wake up one day and it's like, ah, oh, but it's a result of all the work. Yeah. It won't happen just because you stop. I mean, I get around people who stop drinking and never have any kind of 
work program. They never do any kind of work on themselves. And it's not like 12 Steps the only thing. Like, they don't do anything. Yeah. And years into it, they're just bitter grapes, man. Yeah. They are bitter, gossipy, and just depressed and kind of cranky. And they're acting in other areas, usually food. Interesting. And you're just like, it doesn't have to be that way. But, you know, as an addict, I want, I want to do the work and I want it quickly. Yeah. Like, yeah. so I'm just sort of surprised that there's all these new doors I'm discovering, but it feels like the magic key, like the thing that might, I feel like things are going to burst wide open now right. for me. Yeah. Like in where the outsides of my life match the changes that have happened on the inside. Yeah. Like I don't need two fucking rooms in the East Village anymore. Yeah. Like I just don't care. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That I totally get it, and I think that I think that the people that do the work are the people who get uncomfortable the quickest. Because <laughs> it's like I don't do the work because I'm an amazing program person. Because I, I even I, I just want to hate myself a little less. Yeah, it's not. I don't want to like. Oh, I'm such a good person. It's just that I'm so uncomfortable. I don't know what to do. Okay, fine. Go make an amends. Sure, sure, sure. I'll do that, even though it doesn't seem like anything that will help right now. Yes. You know. Um, okay, but so so let's let's. When did you first do heroin? Um, I was living at the Chelsea Hotel in of course you 1978. Are. Of course you are. <laughs> um, there was this guy, he was super cute. He worked at the Copacabana and his name was Peter. Mm-hmm. And I knew he got high. I mean, I was around Thunders and all those people. They were like my friends. So that I was, was around Johnny Thunders. Like I was around the punk rock heroin mm-hmm. addicts. Like mm-hmm. there was punk rock music and then there was the scene that they were all on heroin mm-hmm. <laughs> right so I was there um, quickly once I moved to New York but I mean I'd been doing speed which was hard to get your hands on on the east coast um, but I remember people around me were doing heroin but they were secretive about it mm-hmm. and I knew it was going on I just moved there so I was a little bit like I wanted to be on the inside mm-hmm. And this guy Peter did it, so and I liked him. So mm-hmm. I thought if I got high with him, it would just give us that little, you know, be a reason for him to have to pay attention to me that day. Like there was that part mm-hmm. of me, like you know, if you want to date an alcoholic, you just have a bottle of whiskey in your house all the time. They'll keep coming home, right? right. <laughs> you know, when deep down you don't believe that you're enough to have them come over. Yeah, yeah, I hear you. <laughs> so you know, I got this guy to get me some dope. I remember he shot me up and I tried acting like I'd done it before. And then mm-hmm. I just puked all night. And he like wanted nothing to do with me once he got high. Yeah. And, uh, but it just was, that was the first time. And I remember it like it was yesterday. Yeah. yeah. Did, okay. and that was the beginning. Like I, I got high like the next day. Like as soon as I felt it, like I knew this was like everything I'd been missing. Did, why? What did you feel? Um, I just had surgery two weeks ago. Okay. Okay, for the first time. First time in 26 years narcotics entered my system mm-hmm. when they put me under. When they woke me up, they said, open your eyes. And I was like, hi, how'd it go? Wow. And they were like, it went fine. How do you feel? I go, I feel okay. Yeah. They go, do you think you can urinate? I'm like, can I get up from the table? 
they go, we'll help you. And so I sit down and I hear all this pee coming out of me, but I don't feel it yeah. coming out. And I'm thinking, wow, this is crazy. And then they take me to a room, and two hours later, my friend picks me up, and she's like, didn't you have surgery yet? And I go, no, no, I had it. Right. I had it. And she's like, I did not look like this after surgery. I'm like, no, no, it was small. It's like, you know, it's like a C-section for a hamster. It's little. Mm -hmm. And she's like, hmm. So we leave. She's like, do you need to hold me? I'm like, no, no, I'll just take baby steps. We get to the... um, drugstore I've already set it up that my neighbor who's a nurse is going to hold any opiates opiates because I don't want to be an asshole yeah right so um but I have to go to the drugstore with her because they won't give opiates to anybody except the person who it's prescribed to well plus how many drugstores don't have opiates anymore because they get robbed right so you know it was like five milligram oxycodone which even if I was dope sick I wouldn't have taken you know but um I don't know. I haven't had anything in my system. I could hold your drugs, but I don't know what would happen once I have the taste of drugs. So yeah. I was played it safe. So we go to the drugstore, and we leave, and she's like, let's get a cab. I'm like, let's just walk home. She's like, you just had, they, you just were cut open two hours ago. I'm like, no, no, I'm fine. Just we'll do baby steps. It's so close to get a cab. It's stupid. We start walking. I'm like, let's call Amy and get dinner. Oh, my God. <laughs> So we go out to dinner, and I just kind of sit like this, you know, because I was cut open. Then we go home. We watch Sons of Anarchy. She leaves. And now I'm cleaning up files on my computer that for five years have been bothering me. Oh, my God. And it's 3 in the morning, and suddenly I go, I am high. Yeah. This is everything I loved about heroin. I mean, that was the first thought in my head. This is everything I loved. And then a voice said, you haven't felt this good in 26 years. And I thought, that's the disease. Yeah. That's the disease. That's the trick. Because I really have felt that good during the 26 yeah. years. Yeah. But that's the lie. That's the trick. And it kept saying that to me the whole next week. You know, that was funny how you were so high and you didn't notice you haven't felt that good in 26 years. This was everything you loved about heroin. You were superwoman. I, I mean, question. it's interesting so how it talks. This was not just from the drugs they used to put you no, under. No, this was just from the drugs to put me under. Because they used fentanyl okay, and you know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. But I was like, when I used to do heroin, I didn't like to get gowed. I didn't like to be that person scratching my face off. I wanted to organize my files. Yeah. I wanted to clean my house. I wanted yeah. to, like, you know, cook dinner and put it in containers for like seven days of gourmet food so I could justify spending the rest of my money on drugs like that's who I was when it worked yeah right so it was weird yeah because it was a real reminder of like just how effective drugs were for me to be productive I had the polar opposite experience I had to take morphine about a year and a half ago because this sciatica I couldn't walk Mm. and it was okay for a couple days, and then I went to kill myself. Because you weren't, uh, opiates I, didn't speak to you. They, they sang to me. I loved opiates. Really? It wasn't my main thing. But when I did them, I loved them. And all I could think is, okay, at this point in my life, biochemically, where I am, that's what it does. Yeah. Because it didn't before. Well, it's weird because, so I had the, you know, was put under, and I didn't take pain meds. And by the second night, I was like, okay, I'll take one. Because... Somebody said, you know, you're in pain, the Motrin's not working, you will heal faster if you're not in pain. You have to do it. My sponsor's like, don't be a cowboy, take the fucking pills. So I took it, didn't feel it, but it definitely worked on the pain. But what started happening in the first week was that 
I started having really dark thoughts float through my head. Your life means nothing. Like, I never wanted children, right? Like, it was a choice. I never liked children when I was a child. It was just not for me. Yeah. And you didn't have children, all the choices in your life. I mean, it was just like this crazy, dark, existential, like, kill yourself now. Right. Like, everything, it doesn't matter. You've made all the choices that make for good stories were really choices that fucked your life up and blah, blah, blah. And you never paid your student loans back. And blah, blah. I mean, it just pulled out everything. And I was like, it's back to that, like, kill yourself voice. And I knew it was the drugs. I yeah. knew it was. So it took a day or two? Yeah. And it would just float through. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mine were ever present. Ever present. But going to that place, right, of, like, total meaninglessness. Like, yeah. You'll I mean, be alone forever. Be- you'll die alone. I, I don't actually remember the <laughs> thoughts. I just remember that I was like, I actually can't survive this. I'd much rather take the pain. And the morning didn't really even help with the pain. Uh. Um, but, okay, so okay, so you try heroin with Peter. You love it. The next day, you are going out and buying it? Yeah, I just was in it right away. Like yeah. It was all around me. But, you know, I think there was that thing. I was younger. I moved to New York when I was 18. And everybody was in there like 24 to 30, mm-hmm. like everybody in the scene that I was in. And, uh, you know, I think that nobody wanted to turn me on. Like there was a, still that thing of not wanting to be the person to stick a needle in your arm for the first time. Yeah. And I was so, you know, kind of, it was like that with virginity too. I was like, would someone just take it? Please yeah. just take yeah. it so I can be on the other side of not having this thing be a thing. Yeah. Right? So I just wanted to get hype. But it wasn't until I tricked Peter, who didn't know me, who, like, I basically bought a bag of dope for, which is how I got him to yeah. do it for me, that my friends who were getting high started getting high with, with me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And how long did you do it for? Until I was 28. Ten years. Yeah. Ten solid years. Yeah. And but I'd been getting high since I was 12 on other drugs. But just on, like, pot. No, I took acid every oh, day acid, for 7th right. and 8th grade. Yeah. I've never done it, by the way. <laughs> never want to. Really? Yeah. No interest. I didn't do drugs to like expand my experience. I did it to limit my experience. Oh, yeah. See, with me, it was just like, um, yeah. So, okay, but so straight (laughs) straight heroin for 10 years. And what happened during those 10 years? Um, You know, you you have everything, you lose everything, but you get it all back because you're young and you're resilient and you know so I'd like had things lost things had things lost things put myself back in school did a geographic had a little bit of time away from it but always using something else and then be back on it travel around the world be back on it you know it was just like how are you for supporting yourself uh well a lot of crime (laughs) a various type okay um God, I don't even know what the statute of limitations are, okay, so I can't really talk specific, about certain things. But you were resourceful. We can say that. Put it this way. I had my credit card fraudulently used recently, and I thought, well, that's just karma, isn't it? Right, right, right. <laughs> Payback. Although it happens to all of us now. Now, yeah. Um, yeah, you used to have to dumpster dive to find those uh, receipts. You were resourceful. Oh, I, I was no really doubt. resourceful. Yeah. I, I was the per- like. I have friends who got high with their boyfriends. Their boyfriends had a hustle. They got the drugs. You know, I needed no one mm-hmm. to get high. Mm-hmm. You know, I needed no one. I was so resourceful. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it was like I, I would have never fucked someone for a place to stay because you could, 
I could fuck someone for an hour and be able to pay for an apartment for a month. Like, I was just very mathematical right. when it came right. to being resourceful. Right. Very, <laughs> It was very like, what, what, what's my value? And my value is my freedom and no one weighing me down. Yeah. And when you get high, you cross the line where everyone you hang out with, you fucking hate. That's the hardest part of, like, getting high. Like, you get to that point when you're so strung out that everyone in your life, like, you hate, but you have to spend time with coke dealers and speed dealers and all these fucking people who just want a chick hanging around. So they say, it'll just be a minute, and then you're there for eight hours, but you can't leave because you're powerless and you have to stay till it arrives, and you hate yourself because you want to leave when your friends are named things like dirt bag. <laughs> How did I go from decorating parties to for Andy Warhol and Fellini to being in a hotel room with fancy and veto and dirt bag? How did this happen? <laughs> Wait, tell me about the decorating um, apartments for Andy Warhol. Really? Parties. Parties. Yeah. No, I worked at this club called Area in the eighties oh, in yeah. the art department. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I came here, and well. Oh, I was going to start. Te- no, no, I was going to start telling stories, and I thought oh, this doesn't have to be the, my life starring me. Yeah, but I guess it does because it's my podcast, right? Yeah, <laughs> whatever you want. Okay, when I was a kid, my parents were in their twenties mm-hmm. until I was ten. They were very young when they had me. My father was an alcoholic who got sober when I was ten. My mother came from the generation she believed what priests said, what teachers said, what doctors said. Mm-hmm. You know, she believed in authority. She was having a hard time with her nerves with my dad's drinking. They put her on all these barbiturates and mm-hmm. Valium and everything. She had nervous breakdowns. She was 76 pounds at five foot seven. Oh, my God. She was dying. My parents were dying. And I was... Whew. Okay. Like, I was an only child. So, like, they loved me, but they were not capable of emotionally nurturing me, yeah. which is the story of most addicts, yeah. is yeah. that they didn't feel safe. Yeah. Right? Like, that's the main one. It's safe in, not in a physical harm way, but, like, emotionally. spiritually. Yeah. So, um, when my father got sober, they were young. They didn't know. My mom just suddenly, I couldn't talk about the past. So my past, the slate was wiped. We were never going to talk about the past because we didn't want to get him upset where he might drink again. Yeah. So for me, it was normal that at 11, I had no past. I couldn't say, what happened when we went camping a couple years ago and we left dad at the campground and drove home alone? I remember being upset. What happened? Yeah. Like there was no, it was just cut off. I really so yeah. I come to L.A. in 87 I get clean in 88. I come back from, I end up in a rehab in New Orleans. I come back on a Greyhound bus in 88, clean. And um, it was like, I was starting my life completely. My past was erased once again. It was all these new people who knew nothing about my New York life or Mm -hmm. my marriage or any of that. Mm -hmm. They just knew who I was when they met me in 1988. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until 2000 that I realized how unusual that is Mm -hmm. and that I hadn't questioned it, Mm -hmm. that I was starting out over Right. With no ties to my past. Right. Like it wasn't the first time. Like with trauma, you re-traumatize yourself. Yeah. Right? So, but I'm noticing like historically I'd repeat things and just, it was just normal. Right? You had many times where suddenly a new group that knew nothing. Right. I had many lives. Yeah. And a lot of them were not connected whatsoever. Yeah. Now, since I've been clean, all of them and all the people who are still surviving have reconnected and books have come out about, you know, I was really part of all of these scenes that I was like... I hate to say Forrest Gump, I prefer Woody Allen Zelig, right? Where I was like in the room, 
in a lot of situations with a lot of people that impacted the 20th century for real, politically, creatively, artistically, musically. Like, I was with the players, but so, they wouldn't have known who I was. I was just like the 19-year-old girl who was high and kind of shy, but was there. Yeah. Right? So I was there for all this stuff, and all these books came out, and I'm in all these different books now. So I was saying to a friend here around 2000, I said, remember when we met and I tell you all these crazy stories about my life? Like, why would you even believe me? I could have yeah. been making all that up because they were outrageous stories. Yeah. And she's like, well, we weren't sure, but they were good stories. But then as we got to know you, we realized they were true stories. Well, I have a question. If you're saying nobody would have known you were there because you were this 19-year-old shy girl, why are you in the books? So they did know. Well, as time went on, I ended up, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And who were some of these people besides Andy Warhol? Well, you you know, when I worked at Area, it was really mistaken identity stuff. I just end up in these things mistaken. My ex-husband was an artist. Mm -hmm. All of the girlfriends he ever had were artists. Mm -hmm. So... The brother of an ex-girlfriend was the art director at Area, and we moved to New York, and he just assumed I was an artist because I was Napoleon's wife. Mm-hmm. So, And I needed money, so he's like, here, we'll hire you in the art department. Threw me in a back room and said, here's the power tools, here's the sheet metal, we need a Tin Man, a Dorothy, and a Toto, and I'm like, no problem. Mm-hmm. And then I just sat there and I cried, and I'm just like, you have to make this work. So I just taught myself, like, instantly. How to make to do this? Like a Tin Man out of. I hire people now to hang paintings in my apartment, but I used to. I built lofts and did drywall and I polyurethane floors. Like when I was getting high, I was jack of all trades. I would do cooking for catering companies. I would like sand your floors and repaint them. I would build furniture for you. Right. I mean, I don't even believe, you know, because like for a long time I made money out of the sex industry, but once I was married, I didn't do that. So I just became really super resourceful. But it was always mistaken identity stuff. I didn't step to the plate and lie. I'd just be like, yeah, okay. Yeah, I can do that. Yeah, yeah. But when you're young, that happens. Like people say, can you? And you say yes. And you get older and you're just like, well, I don't really have a history of doing that. Can I do this instead? (laughs) I don't know. I don't know. I... I, d- I think I make the mistake of I say yes to everything pretty much any opportunity I feel and it's and it's it's terrible it's that you overcommit you do stuff you end up doing stuff you don't want to like with TV stuff if you're ever asked to go on TV and it's you know that a celebrity relapsed or whatever and so you are not actually going to be helping anybody by whatever you say because they just want the sensationalist stuff anyway. And you're like, but I'm going to do it anyway. And it feels terrible. I don't know. Do you know what I mean? See, it's funny because I always have said no to that stuff. Oh, you do? Like, I wrote a book. um, I was traveling around the country in 1991 Mm -hmm. writing a book about dancing, stripping. And this was before Howard Stern existed with strippers on a show. It was before scores. Mm -hmm. No one talked about it. And I really hadn't started out that way. I had gotten clean here. I still didn't have my green card, so I was dancing. And I thought, I really, I used to write plays, you know, and I need to write. I'm going to just leave L.A. where I'm starting to think about things like lip injections. Right. And I'm, you know, driving a sports car and I'm wearing pastel colors and expensive Mm -hmm. sunglasses and going to the gym and drinking Evian and listening to meditation tapes. And I want to kill myself. Mm -hmm. Like, who am I? What's happened to me? This is in sobriety. Yes. This is like with... Three years mm-hmm. where I was just I was happy but then I had a moment where I saw myself in the mirror and I was just like oh kill me what yeah. happened to me yeah. what, what happened I'm like this weird LA person now yeah and uh, 
So I get in a car to drive around the country, and I figure I'll just dance everywhere to pay for it, Mm -hmm. and it'll just give me time to rethink my life, maybe do some writing and see what happens. But because everyone I knew in L.A., nobody knew anyone who was like a dancer who was out about it, who they could relate to, Mm -hmm. who they felt was not their idea of a dancer. So suddenly PBS is following me. The LA Weekly puts me on the cover. Like it becomes this <laughs> thing. This. Okay, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it becomes this thing. So now there's this pressure. Like Patty Powers is writing a book about stripping. So yeah. everyone's expecting it, and I didn't want to write that book. Yeah. So I kind of compromised. I wrote it as a novel, and I met with everybody, and I, they all wanted it to be nonfiction, and I said no. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know. Ten years later, I'd still be saying, "Would you like a lap dance?" Because I could have had a book out, but I just knew in my heart, right. I didn't want to write that book. Right, but what happened was um, along the way, I'd have like Arsenio Hall and all these talk shows calling me to be on it because they were getting wind of this stripper who's traveling. Mm-hmm. And I just was like, I have no book to sell yeah. to sit on your show. Like, I don't need to sit there to go, yes, I take my clothes off and I'm smart. Yeah. Surprise, surprise. Like, that's just so condescending that you'd even want to talk to me that right. way. Right. So I was like, no. And they couldn't believe I was saying no because people say yes. Everyone says yes. So I was just yeah. like, I've been saying no for years to but things I, I don't believe. That but was a sometimes smart decision. I think that, I, I think that right. was wise. Right. But there are some times where, like, you know like things moved slower and it's like Spock you know if I would have written that book it would have at least been out it wouldn't have been the book I wanted but it would have led to other things but you know it's like my integrity gets in the way of a lot of things but but how much which was fine until you're like 45 on Bourbon Street working a day shift right right (laughs) I mean I think well you know I'm so down I hope you know on writing books that I'm like who cares (laughs) wouldn't have done anything but that's just my bitterness seeping out but what do you think about I mean one can believe this and still doubt it all the time, but just sort of that, <laughs> that it's, you know, that it all worked out. Like, oh, career everything. stuff. Like, I firmly, I have had so many jobs that I'm like, why am I doing this? And then I get to the, where I am now, and I go, oh, my God, oh. each thing makes sense. Well, and when I was writing that book, it was so, like, that's when I realized, I think I heard some interview with Henry Miller where he was just like, it's not the book it's the ride you're on writing the book. That's hmm. where the joy is. That's why you do it. It has nothing to do with the book people pick up. It's your personal experience while doing it. And when I wrote Road Strip, which was that book mm-hmm. that, you know, people weirdly have been asking me to pull out again. I'm just like, that's weird. It's the novel version. The novel version. Um, is that... When I was doing it, it really was one of those things where everything from like area and getting high with Peter and moving to the Chelsea Hotel and my brother being born when I was 12, like everything in my life made sense in this way that was like beyond mystical. Yeah. Right? And and that was like, I've had that happen my whole life. So I really like, I, I really don't walk around with sour grapes and regrets. I'm just like, this choice, this choice, this choice. It's all, I'm like where I'm at now. And honestly, if everything I'm doing was to be totally removed. If everything I care about, if everything was removed right now, I would be okay. Yeah. And I would end up someplace that would interest me because I'm an interesting person and I'm just interested wherever I'm at. Right. You know right. what I mean? Right. That's the truth of it. And that whole needing to hang on and art direct things to go somewhere because my heart is set on it and I need to will it my way, like no matter what. Because the intentions are right, and it's for right reasons. It's so painful to live that way, and I did that in recovery for so long. And I'm just like, I'm so at this place now where I 
don't have really heavy attack. Like, I like how things are going, and I have fun. But if everything's taken away and I'm thrown somewhere else, like, I'm down for the adventure now, mm-hmm. which in a way that's different. I Like, I always knew I'd be okay with the adventure, whatever it was. But now I'm, like, kind of excited by it. Like, I get mm. more excitement out of just free-falling and letting the universe throw me places. That's Which is super, super cool. I, I didn't do know I could like get that. there. It happened after 22 years. Right. Like, so that's the thing. Like, if you're new and you're listening to this and yeah. you're going through this rough moment, you're just the needle on the record that is stuck. Yeah. And there's a big fucking song to play still. And you just hold on yeah. because you'll get over that little hump. Don't kill yourself over that little moment. It's just a moment. Small moment in a really long song. Yeah. And you just hold on. Yeah. In recovery, you don't fucking use. You just hold on because the needle moves. And yeah. other stuff always, opens up. It just keeps moves. opening up and opening up. Yeah. And it never gets boring. It never gets boring. And getting high gets boring so quickly. I know. I know. And you pretend that... And the disease says it doesn't get boring. No, it was exciting. It's like, no, no. It really, like, get a reality check. You did not get clean because it was exciting. You got clean because you were bored and unhappy. Period. And you ended <laughs> up alone in your room by yourself. Right. It's not interesting. Right. Yeah. Making lists of what you were going to do as soon as you got it together. Yeah. And then you go, oh, I haven't done anything in like three years. Right. <laughs> I live in an abandoned building right. and they wanted to amputate my arm and I had nobody to phone because I have nobody in my life. Did that happen to you? Yeah. At County Hospital. So you had just shot up into it too? I ended up, I, no, I ended up with cellulitis. What is that? It's like an infection. Uh-huh. Yeah. Oh, but this out. is like how crazy I was, mm-hmm. right? I have this infection in my arm. I have a stick shift car with no Canadian plates, no insurance, no mm-hmm. sticker. This is in New York? Here, here. Okay, okay. And I'm living in an abandoned building by myself at Crenshaw and 8th Street. Okay. And it's getting spooky because I have no lock. It's like a little apartment that had been built above a dilapidated garage. And there's an empty house. And nobody knew about it. But now, at night, I'm seeing some crackheads walking through the property. So I know I'm going to be killed in this place. And no one's ever going to find me. Like, I know that that's what's coming. So I have to walk up a fire escape Mm -hmm. to get in the door at night. And I just know, like, I'm alone there. And I had a little ride with it for a while. But it was getting the neighborhood, like... Um, helicopter lights would go through my backyard. Like, weird stuff was happening there. Yeah. So I get this infection in my arm, but I'm going downtown to cop, and I have some guy who, you know, one of those guys with a squeegee thing who has, like, some low-level homeless hustle happening. (laughs) And I'm giving him a ride down to, like, Gladys or some crazy street where people are around cans on fire, you know, keeping warm. Yeah. And, uh... I can't move the stick shift because my arm is so sore. Mm -hmm. And when he gets out of the car, I'm like so sick and my arm's so sore. And I look and he'd stolen my purse. And it was like the last fucking thing I had. Like every, my ID, like everything was gone. So he got out of the car with your purse. Yeah, he got out of my car. He was like ruffling around the back seat. Mm -hmm. And then he got out. So now I have, and I just remember that feeling of hopelessness. Like my arm hurt. I couldn't drive the stick shift. And I just started crying. Yeah. Like it was just like I couldn't keep going. And I got back to the house and there was this crackhead who lived in the in the uh tool shed. 
<laughs> and I asked him if he'd drive me to the hospital. Mm-hmm. And I got to the hospital. And um, they, I had no insurance, right? So I was at Good Samaritan, and I had a little temper tantrum because I heard the nurse tell the woman next door that I was a drug addict, and I was all indignant. Like, I don't need this shit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so then they took me to county, mm-hmm. and they put me on the AIDS floor, and they wanted to test me. And I was like this crazy arty bag lady, right? Because I had this whole history, this whole, you know, but I was like in the queen of the underground of New York City in the 70s, you know, right. blah, blah, like this delusion. And uh, I just looked at them and I said, you know, I've been a little depressed and I think it might just affect my test results. So could we hold off on that AIDS test right now until I'm in a better space? I mean, I said this to them. Yeah. Like my yin and yang were off or something. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. And it was going to affect my right. being positive. And they were like, okay. <laughs> but also, did you think you, you meant, I can't take it if it's bad news? I just, yeah, I just, but I also felt like I needed to be in a better space because I just didn't want to psychically yeah. move it, move the needle towards the right if it yeah. was meant to go towards the left. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, but I mean that was a dark spot and I had nobody to call and I got out of there and I went back to the abandoned building it looked like somebody had moved into my spot my car wasn't there and I just left like it was just weird I just kind of left everything I don't know how I got my car back Um, but in that moment in that house I'd met this guy Mm -hmm. so after I do the TV show and I'm thinking, you know, I should really... I'm in L.A. a lot right now. The A&E show we're talking about. Yeah. Okay, yeah. I should meet with different treatment centers because maybe they need coaches for yeah. some of their clients. Like, it makes so much sense to me to work with someone after rehab because it's getting home. Everyone relapses their first three weeks home. So I thought, well, I should go talk to treatment centers because I always worked outside of that world. Mm-hmm. So I'm looking at treatment centers. Don't even tell me he owns one. A guy who I lived with in the abandoned building for a minute who'd just been kicked out of Guns N' Roses the day I met him. Mm-hmm. Who, he took my car once and, you know, we got high and then he wanted to shoot coke and I didn't want to shoot coke and he got in my car and he left. And when he came back, I had put knives in all the bushes because I was ready to fight him to the death. It mm-hmm. was like, I can't take this shit. Like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fight, and if you call my bluff, I will kill you. So I put all these knives in the bushes, and he came back in a cab, not in my car, and I'm standing with a knife on the fire escape at this abandoned building, right? Where's my car? And he, like, gets back in the cab. He throws my car keys on the sidewalk, gets in the cab, and goes to his mom's in Mulhall and goes to rehab. Wow. I don't see him for years, and... I'm looking, and there he is at Promises. He's a counselor. And I was like, oh, my God. So we got together. Oh. And I said, you know, Chris, I really, remember that time with the knife? Like, you don't know, but I had seven knives in bushes. Like, I really was going to kill you. I had become a crazy person. Yeah. Like, you're so lucky yeah. that you got in that car. Wow. <laughs> wow. And he's a counselor, and he was in Guns N' Roses? Yeah, he got kicked out the day I met him, but, I, you know, it was just all crazy. And then years later, he had gotten clean, and to make amends for smashing my car windshield, he had written, like, Sweet Child of Mine or something, and he had all this money. He so wrote he, that song? So he gave what me... What is his, his last name? Can I we, can't. So, okay, okay, okay. Uh, but he gave me... Um, 
He gave me pawn tickets. I ran into him and he had a few months clean. I had like a year. He gave me pawn tickets for a TV and VCR he'd gotten from his wedding. So for a hundred bucks, I got a TV and VCR that I had my first 13 years clean. Wow. That was his amends for my car window. That's and then the next time I met him, he was a counselor wow. with nine years clean or something. Wow. And, uh, and I had also lived in a kitchen when I first got to LA and I left my marriage. I lived in a kitchen on Poinsettia with these teenagers mm-hmm. who liked to go to cat club or cat house. What was it called? That cat rock and roll club, like when Guns N' Roses and then we're all starting. There was a club on Highland called Scream and it was That's cat club or cat know. house. I don't know. It was the big hair rock and roll thing. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm living with these. Oh, I know Ricky Rackman's yes. club. He's been on this podcast. Okay. That just suddenly rang a bell. Yes. Yeah. Love him. So I'm living with these teenage. I'm 27. I just like left area. I, my marriage had ended. I'd had like a million life experiences, and I'm here. I just ran away because I knew I was going to die, and I didn't know what to do. And I came to LA because a friend of mine who I was my neighbor who I always had a little crush on had moved here. Mm-hmm. So I was going to stay with him, and we were going to get clean and drive back to New York. And when I got here, he was. They'd done an intervention. He wasn't here. Mm -hmm. So I arrived here to nothing. Mm -hmm. And somehow this girl he worked with at Tower Video, Mm -hmm. who now owns an art gallery, has run into her since then. Um, She was working at Tower Video. She was 18 from Seattle. Mm -hmm. She'd moved here. She's like, he's not here. I'm like, oh, my God, I don't know what to do. I just drove 3,000 miles. She's like, come to Tower. Just I'll tell you how to get here. Mm -hmm. She lived on Poinsettia with these other little girls who just moved here to go to school and stuff, who worked in clothing stores on Melrose when Melrose was four stores and a smoothie place. That was all that was there. And so I move, I stay with them. I move in with this 16-year-old boy who tells me he's 22, who I'm, like, obsessed with. Okay. He's 16. He shows up with a skateboard, brings me some speed. We kind of double talk. I realize he likes heroin, so we, like, bond. Mm-hmm. We are living in her kitchen on a single-sized piece of foam. There's a rat in a cage. The rat has died, and no one has oh, noticed. God. And he's a sober coach now. Wait a minute. So the two of you, you and the 16-year-old, lived in the kitchen. We shared a single-sized piece of foam, not even a futon, a single-sized piece of foam in a kitchen. And uh, he stayed in my life. He's been in in famous bands. He's done all these things, blah, 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 blah. And uh, I hadn't talked to him for a few years, and he saw I was coming to... LA and I said well it's weird you know I'm doing this TV show and I've been working as a sober coach because me too he tours with bands he does all this stuff so the two guys of my LA year using the one I was going to kill yeah who's a counselor promises and the other one is a sober coach like it's so crazy to me that is so crazy so would you say what portion of the people you got high with are sober and what portion are dead um Three or four are sober. Wow. Um, and this, I'm talking from like when I moved here, like in terms of my life in the 80s and 70s, like my life before here, one, two. Two people, th- three got sober. Some have like gone back to drinking and they're okay. They yeah. have not gone back to drugs. Yeah. And um, the number of people who've died is staggering. I'm like, you know, I was so desensitized because I came up through AIDS, suicides, and drug overdoses. And uh, the amount of people who've died, it's staggering. And I think the tipping point was like two years ago, my best friend, I helped her get, she had six days clean and then she drank all this methadone I didn't know she had and she died. I'd never heard of anyone dying from methadone overdoses. She died. It killed me. 
killed me. All this time, she was not sober until those six days? Um, yeah, she, would, she yeah, was no. never... She had gotten a year in NA and decided drinking wasn't a problem, and then yeah. it was like four years later, she was like on oxys and mm-hmm. methadone and stuff, and I got her clean and she died. And that was the tipping point. It was like all the deaths that I'd managed to think I was like handling, yeah. just all the grief. Yeah. It's been something I've been processing in the last year. I actually was writing something for After Party Chat on you grief. Were. But yeah, I have like I three things that I started, but I've just been I too know. busy to finish anything. I wish you would. It's been a year I, probably I know, since I we know. published And I have yeah. like three things for you. I spoke at this, I'm doing this little project soon with all these little hookers and hyenas. Uh huh. Great name. Go on. <laughs> Hookers and hyenas. Well, I'm trying to balance things out. I'm trying yeah. to get this, this. I have this. <laughs> I sound so terrible. I was going to say, I have this stupid fucking recovery book that I need to write. Yeah, don't say that. It is like this boulder this. in the road. Yeah, I know. And my, the screenplay I left unfinished that had been optioned and all this yeah. other stuff's on the other side of this boulder. Yeah. Now, I write a lot of recovery stuff, and, yeah. and recovery is important. Like, I just, I get frustrated because. It, I get sick of hearing myself talk about recovery. When I'm with a right. client or something, or I'm with someone, I sp- like, it's sincere. It's really, like, central to my life. Mm-hmm. Like, it really is. But it, I get sick of hearing myself oh, yeah. be this expert. Like, I want to go, I'm not really an expert. I was like, you yeah. know, like, ah. But I just, it makes me cringe when people are like, addiction expert, Patty Powers. I and I don't know why, because I, I help people. I get yeah. people writing to me saying, um, you know, it was my first Thanksgiving sober, and I didn't know how I was going to do it. I read 60 of your blogs that night. It saw me yeah. through. I just want to thank you. And I'm not saying that to toot my horn. It's just sometimes I forget that like I'm putting that stuff out there to the universe, and I get frustrated because it, like, it's another responsibility, all this pressure. Now I have like this book coach. I have all this stuff happening. I need to get it done. I really want my creative work to come back into my life. And so because it turns into this job with pressure, yeah. I get negative about it. Yeah. And I forget that it actually, the reason I'm doing it is because like people are reading it and it's helping them and they oh, yeah. relate to it. And I should stop letting that voice say that I have nothing to say about it because it's not true. Well, and I just get course. sick of myself. But my experience is that is that, um, and even when speaking in a meeting, it's like you find new things every time. If you're not trying, mm-hmm. you know, if you're reaching, and why write or speak if you're not reaching? You know, if you're just mm-hmm. reciting what yeah. you know already and what's worked already, right. you know. Um, I, I, I'm with you that it turns out that addiction and recovery is the most interesting thing I've ever come across. Yeah. And I, too, get sick of everything really quickly, and it's astounding to me. I'm like, I'm going to burn out doing this all day long and then, like, having recovery program. But I don't. I know. I get re-inspired. I know. And, well, see, what happened is, you know, my whole thing, like I was telling you about how I'm just in this place of... Um, I just trust the process in such a deeper way now. Like if everything's removed and I'm somewhere, I'm not attached to anything. Mm-hmm. Like I really am not. It sounds so like Zen and weirdo and I never believed people when they said this, but it's really how I feel. Mm-hmm. So what happened is, you know, I was in this place of like, I've got to write this book and I don't know who I'm writing it for. And I don't know what, I, like, you know, I'm either living with clients, I'm touring with clients, I'm, you know, doing Skype sessions with clients and having time in my own life. Like, I'm trying to figure out how I want to do this work where it doesn't absorb my life so Mm -hmm. my personal life can be as valuable to me. Mm -hmm. And then I went and did this thing in Hyannis in Cape Cod 
this candlelight overdose vigil. And I got involved with a woman there who's pretty remarkable, who's part of this harm reduction mm-hmm. thing, where it's mostly like for AIDS mm-hmm. and drug STD testing, but she also does like a needle exchange. And believe it or not, the amount of young teenage prostitution in this small town, wow. it's gone up four times the amount in a year. That's great. And they're like abscessed armed... Heroin addicts, like, turning cheap tricks, right? And um, four times as many. These are the people who are coming to our needle exchange and for STD testing. And I said, you know what? Like, I will come out and let's set stuff up with all... Because so many kids are dying out there. Like, a small town like that, 150 died last year. Like, when I was there, four died when I was there for two days. Like, she got that many calls. And all through New England and Maine, everywhere, it's like... Dope is $3 a bag in Boston. It tastes different. They don't know what it's cut with. People are dying. Yeah. Like, everywhere. So I thought, like, let's talk to... I have the sex work background. Like, let me talk to these girls, and we'll just lead them towards recovery. Like, it's not going to be a, like, I'm going to talk to you about recovery and get you clean and get you out of prostitution. It's just like, let me show you how you can be clean and be a prostitute until you're ready to not be a prostitute. Like, let's just move that way. So I realized that I can take this book and what it could do for me is open up freedom in my own time so I could do, like, passion projects, like, stuff like this. So it kind of re-excited me and made it possible for me to write again. So I'm, like, getting your stuff done. Yay! Yeah. Yeah. Well, and also, it's like you are so busy with the different things you do. And the the sober coaching, you know, it seems like it is full. When it's on, it's full on. Wait, let's talk about how you got into it, though. Okay. How'd you get into it? Um, well, I married, you know, I was always around entertaining people. Like, my life's always been that way. So, um, I married a friend of mine. Is this like is this gonna like remove my you. green card? Okay. Oh, okay, no, 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 great. Okay, Very so fine. I I got married yeah. to a musician yeah who was very well known in Europe uh-huh. and a lot of his friends were starting to get clean yeah and when they'd come to town they would see if I could go on tour because I was dancing and I didn't work that much yeah but I worked so little that if I took time off my life would financially implode yeah so they'd be like we'll cover it. Yeah. So it was something that started out where I didn't see it like a job. It was just like I was helping some people out. Yeah. It was kind of fun. I, I liked that life and I wasn't it wasn't costing me anything to do it. And yeah. I wasn't you know. And so it kind of started that way and then word started to spread and then I you know, so some stuff would come up randomly mm-hmm. and so I remember what happened one time was that you know, I, when I wrote Road Strip, that book, mm-hmm. the very first day, like, this is weird. A friend of mine wanted this fag who really loves everything stripper, mm-hmm. burlesque. Bef- you know, because I was doing burlesque before the burlesque scene. Mm-hmm. So he did this cover, for my, a mock cover for my book. Mm-hmm. And it was on his desk. And this li- lady, this older woman who worked for Fredericks of Hollywood down the hall from him, mm-hmm. had come in to see it. She'd met me once. Mm-hmm. And so she had it on her desk. Mm-hmm. And her daughter-in-law, who was a big film producer, was in town looking to option material, mm-hmm. saw that and said, what is that? And I was printing off my very first, I'd just written the end, and I was printing off my printer at home, my first copy, and I got a call and I gave it to her. Mm-hmm. So she, you know, she's been sort of a... Uh, my biggest champion with my writing right. all these years. And so, um, you know, 
I'm on the road with a band, and you know she's at a meeting and she's out at dinner, and someone's complaining. My actress, blah blah. blah. My friend does this work, yeah, right. So I I wasn't doing this work, but to her, I was working as this like, yeah, drug treatment person, yeah. So it just that was kind of how it would happen, yeah. In other people's eyes, I was the sober coach, whereas in my eyes, I was just kind of like rolling with it, you know. And then skills, like my skill set was building through all of this. And then um, at one point, I had read, David Gordon had written a story about a writer who became a sober coach, and he's with this upshot young writer. Mm -hmm. It's kind of of like a... what makes Sammy run type of mm-hmm. story who's like using and being more famous than the writer who's the sober coach so mm-hmm. it's this like tug of war and so I called him I'm like how would I get into doing that like for real like mm-hmm. I mean I know it exists now when I was doing it it didn't really exist and I know it exists he's like I don't know why don't you you know then I saw this other friend of mine who I'd met um you know, who was like the head creative at Geffen or DreamWorks or something mm-hmm. and we have lunch a few times a year and I'm like Joe what do you think I should do, like, for work? Mm-hmm. What do you think? Like, you know, my big dreams of, you know, the writer's strike killed that screenplay, so what should I do? He's like, why don't you just do the coaching? That yeah. you can? I'm like, how would I do that for real? Like, I don't know. And I made one call, and I was working, like, 24 hours later. Wow. And it was just weird. And, and I still wasn't, you know, I'm just like, I don't know. You know, I really see myself as a writer and a performer, yeah. so I'm just like, I don't know. And then, um, then A&E calls me, and it just... And once A&E happened, then I became that. Yeah. Because I was answering so many emails from people who watched the show trying to help them. People who had no money. It wasn't like they were, you know, my audience wasn't going to hire me. They were just like, help me for free. Like, aren't you that nice person who goes and stays with people? I'm like, not that nice. So I was trying to help them. And then it was exhausting. I thought I should do a blog because clearly, like, I care about those people and they'll never have a dollar, you know, so how can I do it? And then it became this thing. Yeah. Right. Where I was just absorbing all my creative writing. When you met me, when the, the fi- show the on. fix yeah. started, when the show came on, I remember. And, and the show, by the way, was called Relapse, right? Just yes. so people know. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Yeah. And it was a it was a sort of offshoot of Intervention. Yeah. It was the same production company, same directors. Yeah. And um, I think it might even be on like netflix or itunes or something yeah, right now because like i've, I've been it. walking around having people saying aren't you that girl from that show and i'm like what are you crazy yeah. like what kind of memory do you have that was four years ago like yeah. how could you even but so it happened like three times in dc last week yeah. so i'm like okay it must be someone's like watching it somewhere netflix. someone's watching it somewhere it's yeah. weird yeah um yeah so it just kind of made me public about it, and it kind of put all my creative stuff on hold. Yeah. Because when I met you, I was like, well, you know, I don't know, because I'm trying to finish this rewrite of a screenplay, but, and then this just has taken over. Yeah. And, you know, and, and it feels right, and it feels good, and I feel like there's enough time and room in the universe for me to do everything at some point. It doesn't have to be either or. But I was touring with this band, and I was watching all the excitement they were going through, and I loved them, and I was so happy for them, and I just thought, you were having all this excitement, and you walked away from it to do this. And I just was like, well, I think I need a break so I can do some creative stuff for a little bit. So I did. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. But it was a weird feeling. It was just like, I'm your babysitter now, and I was the artist before, and it was just a really strange thing while I was totally happy on the job. Yeah, it's interesting because I'm not being too creative anymore. 
and I love it. Like I think it's like I think it's like bottoming out on drugs. I bottomed out after six books on wanting to be a writer. Mm. And it's such a relief to not want that. And I keep questioning because I'm like, how can you be satisfied? Like you got to write, you got to live this dream. And now I love After Party. I am so grateful that it's financially supporting itself and that it's making money and all this stuff. But I'm like, you're a paper pusher sometimes. Like how is this okay? And it's okay. It's not, it's better than okay. So I don't know. Well, it's weird because it's like, well, it's like what I do and what you do. Like people are like, wow, you're with someone for 30 days. Like, I want my personal life back. Yeah. And one of the things with that work that makes it hard, so I've been doing more work with people where they're like um, kind of higher bottom. Mm-hmm. So they can do some Skype sessions and we can work with email. And I've been seeing really good results that way and it gives me a lot more time in my life. Yeah. And I've been really enjoying having that time. But when I do the 30-day job, it's so satisfying because I'm like a spy. Yeah. And I get to see what's going to trigger them later and what's going on with them that they can't see that I'd never get privy to if, you weren't around if I weren't around them. Yeah. And I can really sculpt them into like a really solid type of understanding of themselves and their recovery. And I love it. Yeah. And it's so satisfying. And um, But, you know, when I book a job like that, my first thing is I feel heartsick like oh your life you're not gonna have your life but it's the minute i arrive with my suitcase you know and they open the door i'm like i'm here then i'm like in it yeah. and it's satisfying so with what you're doing it's sa- spiritually satisfying it's hard to explain in any way other than that yeah it is and also you know the whole like making a good living can we just talk about how that's like oh that doesn't matter you just Fuck the way I was trying to make a living with books. Like, talk about, like, losing faith in God. You know what I mean? Like, I I think that, you know, I absolutely know that it's the spiritual life that brings contentment, but I'm tired of pretending like that stuff doesn't matter. Oh, and I come from the other world where I didn't even know. I I used to perform with Ron Athey, so I've done, like, all this extreme body art touring all over the world stuff with him. And, um, you know... I mean, I grew up when No Wave was starting. I was 17 years old, sitting in CBGBs, watching like all the No Wave, Lydia Lunch type performance art stuff, and hearing that art for its sake. And it's because nobody was paying attention to that whole world. Like a couple bands got on labels that were small, you know, like Blondie and the Ramones, but nobody really thought that financially. If anybody had come in to write a check, every single one of those people would have happily taken that check. Every single one. But I was so young. What I internalized was that it was art for its sake and anything else was just fucking dirty, yuppie scum. And so my relationship to money was like, if it's coming from sex work, yeah, easy come, easy go. Yeah. I'm fine with that. Give me a lot. Yeah. Or if it's coming from my art. But anything in between is just a sellout. And it really hurt me. Yeah. And I didn't even see that I had internalized something that was never true. It was never real. I was just too young and impressionable. I just believed it hook, line, and sinker. Well, and because <laughs> we have to wrap up, what a full circle from thinking that you can only have the two-room apartment. Right. You exactly. had just bought like into this belief system and not altered it. Right. And it's crazy because it's like I'm an intelligent person and I'm pretty self-aware. Yeah. But those little things, those were the faraway closets that yeah. of, of like belief systems that I internalized when I was high and when I was young. Yeah. Because I never asked questions because being cool was all that mattered yeah. to me. Yeah. So I got all this misinformation 
that I never questioned, and it put my life on a course that has been an interesting course. Like I, if I died tomorrow, I would not feel like I'd been cheated. Right. My life has been a ride that, like, I have really enjoyed. The pain, the suffering, the highs, the lows, the love, the loss—like all of it—I've had fun time with it. But this other stuff was controlling me in ways that I couldn't see, and yeah. it's like. I don't know if it was the EMDR, I don't know what it was, but like it's opened up, I see the drawers, and I just feel like things are going to just fucking blow up now for me in all kinds of interesting ways. So if you're new, we haven't talked a lot about recovery, but if you're new, like just... Oh, just wait 26 years and you feel like that. (laughs) (laughs) No, but like it's been interesting all along the way, but it stays interesting. There's no there to get to. There's no fucking there that you're going to get to. It's not when I do this, then I can have fun. When I do this, then I can have love. When I do this, then I can be happy. It's just like, this is it. This is the ride. This is that ride that Henry Miller talked about. This is the ride. We're in it. Yeah. Like, yeah, experience it, it. Don't put it on hold for tomorrow. Like, experience this. I love it. Let's end on that note. So, yeah, that was Patty Powers on the After Party Pat. On the After Party Pod, you guys. I can't speak anymore, but, but I love you anyway, and I hope you loved Patty, and keep downloading, and keep listening, and subscribing, and doing your reviews. I wanted to give a shout out to a very, very lovely emailer I got uh, last week uh, saying that he listens to the podcast on his daily 50-minute commutes to work. So sometimes he's got a little extra podcast left over. Um, Anyway, uh, he appreciates the podcast. I appreciate him. So thank you. Keep listening. I love you guys. Bye.